Today we're in Genesis chapter 44, and uh, if you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. Everybody turn to Genesis chapter 44, and if you need a Bible, we have guys that will be glad to hand out a Bible to you. Just slip up your hand, and we'll tell you what page it's on. It's on page 34 and 35, Genesis chapter 44. Can you look back in your life and see God at work in the good times and in what we call bad times? Um, Can you look at your life and see how there are times that God has taken you through some very difficult things? And then he's used those things to help you grow and mature as a follower of Christ. Now, what we've learned in Genesis um, chapter 37, and this whole story is in Genesis 37 through 50. And so we're right in the middle of it. Uh, What we've learned in the life of Joseph is that God used hard times to grow Joseph as a leader. So let me refresh the story. We're going to start with Genesis 44. The story is chapter 37 through 50. So like, you know, if you're just kind of jumping here in the middle of it, we've been at this for a a few weeks. Um, Joseph's family was a little bit dysfunctional. I'm just reminding us. Dad was a little controlling and he had a history of deception. Joseph's brothers were uh, an angry lot and they were resentful of Joseph uh, during those growing up years. The brothers had a history of lying and violence. Joseph's dad was named Jacob and he was also called Israel. Joseph's dad had two wives. Now this is where it gets complicated. And he had two concubines, which ended up being four mothers of 13 kids, 12 sons and one daughter. So this is a large blended family with complicated family dynamics. Jacob, the father, had a favorite son, and his name was Joseph. Joseph was favorite because Joseph was the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife. This is complicated. Um, When Joseph was 17, his brothers, who hated him for being the favorite, ambushed him, threw him in a pit, and sold him to a caravan on the way to Egypt. This is human trafficking, by the way. And so... uh, The scriptures tell us uh, through this, but the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery into Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife was very attracted to Joseph and she wanted to go to bed with him day after day after day. And Joseph said no, and he ends up in prison. Joseph's integrity and leadership was noticed in jail and he became the prisoner in charge of everything within the walls of the prison. Joseph interpreted two dreams while he was in prison, the chief baker and the chief cupbearer of Pharaoh. Eventually, he interpreted two dreams of the Pharaoh. God enabled Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Remember, two dreams. And it was about seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt and seven years of great famine in the land of Egypt. 
Pharaoh was so excited about meeting Joseph, he appointed Joseph to, the, to be top dog. And so Joseph became the chief executive officer, the governor of all the land of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery. He was 30 when he stood before Pharaoh. And now, after seven years of, fam- uh, seven years of abundance and two years of famine, at the age of 39... We come to Genesis chapter 45. The family has come twice now to Egypt to get food. The setting is Egypt. Joseph's 11 brothers have come to buy food, and they are about to load up and head back. This time they brought their younger brother, Benjamin. This is significant. Why? Benjamin is now the favorite son of his dad. Remember, we talked about playing favorites. That has its problems. So Benjamin is with them, and this is pretty significant. And Benjamin is the only son that he has left from his favorite wife. Uh, Chapter 44, verses 1 through 13, being tested again. This time the brothers are tested. They're tested again for the second time. Look at verses 1 and 2, and we have the instructions Okay, verses, verse 1. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put in each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Now that's what Joseph did the first time they came. They came, uh, they stood before him. He, he put them through some sort of testing and he ended up giving them food and all the money they brought to pay for the food, he put back in their sacks And they thought something weird had happened, and they were just being blessed by Joseph. And they got the food for free, by the way. Now they're back for a second time, and Joseph does the same thing. He orders that they get the food, and they're going to get their money also. And they don't know it yet. Verse 2, then Joseph says to a steward, put my cup, the silver one. So the steward would know which one. In the mouth of the youngest one's sack, that would be Benjamin, along with the silver Uh, for his grain, and he did as Joseph said. Joseph wanted this special cup to go in Benjamin's sack. So the plan, verses 3 through 5, we're going to cover a lot of scripture this morning, so hang in there. Here we go, verse 3. As morning dawned, they're in Egypt, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to the steward, so here's the plan, go after those men at once, And when you catch up with them, say to them, why have you repaid good for evil? This is where the test begins to unfold with Joseph's plan. They're going to be accused of stealing this special silver cup. Verse 5, isn't this cup my master? This is the servant. Isn't this the cup my master drinks from? And he also uses for divination. This is a wicked thing. You have done. The point is, this is a very valuable cup. By the way, there's no record of Joseph using a cup for divination. Divination is more like witchcraft. It's sort of uh, trying to identify in a supernatural way from some outside force something about the future. There's no record that Joseph ever used this, but this is part of the test. This is part of his story. Uh, that he has set up for his brothers. Um, Verse 
This is six through nine. We come to uh, the defense. Verse six, when he caught up with them, the steward caught up with the brothers. He repeated these words to them. But they said to him, why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like this. Now, you remember the brothers have been under a lot of distress when they meet Joseph. Joseph keeps setting up the kind of environments that are very stressful. He treats them a little bit harshly. And he's not revealed himself to them yet. Now, let me remind you. Yes, Joseph is the brother. Why don't they know their brother? Well, the truth is they believe their brother is dead. You remember, they, he's 17. They, they threw him in a pit. He went off to Egypt. I mean, what in the world could have happened to him? They have no clue of anything about Joseph. Joseph is dressed like an Egyptian. He looks like an Egyptian. He has an Egyptian haircut, and he's speaking Egyptian. He's probably a little bit of a hunk compared to what he was at 17. He had everything he wanted, all the health clubs, everything he needed. They don't expect to see him. And this is really a strange environment, so they don't recognize him. Um, So verse 8, we even brought back to you, this is the brothers speaking, from the land of Canaan, the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. They're just telling the truth now. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? Verse 9, if your servants... If any of your servants is found to have it, that cup, he will die and the rest of us will become the Lord's slaves. So this is pretty bold. They're saying, if we have the cup, because we didn't steal it, they're very confident. By the way, they are doing the right things. Have you ever, you know, I mentioned this previously, but have you ever been living in a, you're doing things that you know you're supposed to be doing. You're living well. You're living rightly. And then you get tested. And this, this has come upon them. Um, they're so certain that they're willing to have the person who has stolen this cup, uh, they're willing to say, let him die and we'll all be your slaves. We'll, we'll, if this is true, we're going to be your slaves and you can execute the one who has stolen this. They They believe in no way has anybody taken anything from uh, the governor of Egypt. The discovery comes in verses 10 through 13. Very well then, he said, let it be as you say, whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Now, this is not what they said. This is much more lenient. Remember, they said, you can execute the one who has it. We'll all be slaves. Nope. All you need to do is the one who's stolen the cup, they will become prisoner and slave. Verse 11, each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. By the way, how does he know that? And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Who? Benjamin. This is daddy's boy. He's the only one left. This is the one most important to dad. And again, you know, that's not good to have one child that sort of seems to be loved more than all the other sons. And uh, verse 13, 
At this, they tore their clothes. That was a custom in their culture to express extreme grief, emotional pain about the situation. And so they are grieved deeply because the worst thing happened that could have happened. Benjamin is becoming a prisoner and they just offered him to be executed. And uh, then they all loaded their donkeys and they returned to the cities. So they were leaving Egypt. Now they're on their way back. Verses 14 through 34, facing the consequences and the challenge comes in 14 and 15. We're at, yeah, we go, the challenge. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves on the ground before, them, uh, before him. Now, did you just see that? What's happened again? You remember the dream, Genesis chapter 37? It was the dream that Joseph had about his brothers. They were out harvesting in the field. They were harvesting grain. And Joseph has this, this dream and that the sheaves that his brothers had gathered all bowed down to his sheaf and it stood up. His brothers got the message. His brothers understood the dream was about all the brothers would be subservient to Joseph. And here it is again. I think this is the fourth ta- time that they bowed low to the governor of Egypt who has a secret name of Joseph. Verse 15, Joseph said to them, what is this you've done? Do you not know that a man like me can find things out by divination? So Joseph continues his ruse. He wants them to know they have stolen his cup that is essential for his work. Um, And he acts like he uses it for divination. Scripture doesn't tell us whether he did or he didn't. Um, I believe he was using this as part of this test. It was a ruse. It was sort of like, this is a story we've manufactured. Verse 16, the admission. What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? And the point is they can't. And notice what Judah says next. Judah is speaking for the family. Judah is taking leadership. He's taking ownership for the past. God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Do you see that? It's one of the most important texts in the book of Genesis. This is where the story has been headed. They have been found out. They know it. And by the way, Judah is seeing God at, it, at work in his circumstances. Judah sees more than just this is a bad day before the governor of Egypt. Judah sees the God of the universe is involved in his circumstances right now. He goes on to say, we are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. Now he separates we ourselves from the one who has the cup. Why is that? Because Benjamin had nothing to do with Joseph being sold into slavery. Benjamin is not responsible. There is no guilt on Benjamin. Only the other 11 brothers. 10. 10. And... Um, so Benjamin's separated. He's the one who has the cup and we're all prisoners. And this sin lying 
dormant, uncovered, not talked about much at all for 22 years. That happens, doesn't it, in families? Bad things happen, and then people live as if nothing happened, and they don't get dealt with. People don't confess. People don't say they're sorry. Forgiveness is not talked about. Forgiveness is not an issue. Reconciliation is not an issue. It's just like there's a big elephant in the room. Don't talk about it. Verse 17, we come to uh, the requirement. But Joseph said, far be it for me to do such a thing. To do what thing? To take all of the brothers as slaves? Only the man who was found to have the cup will be my slave. The rest of you, go back to your father in peace. So Joseph's saying, this is no big deal. I don't want all of you guys. I just want the one. I want the one who had my cup. And now we see the predicament in verses 18 through 32. Then Judah went up to him and said, please, Lord, this is Judah taking leadership for the family. This is one of the most profound speeches in the book of Genesis, one of the best in the Bible. Please, my Lord, let your servant speak a, a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord, and he's going to recount now what's happened. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? That was true. And we answered, we have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead. Joseph. They believe that Joseph is dead. They assume he is dead. They live as if he is dead. He and his brother is dead, and he, Benjamin, is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. That's sad. It's great that his father loves him, but I don't think any of the other sons know that the father loves them too. Verse 21, Then you, this is Judah speaking to Joseph, the governor of Egypt, Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, Benjamin, so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, this is Judah, the brother cannot leave his father. If he leaves, his, leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother, Benjamin, comes down with you, you will not see my face again. You're not going to be able to buy grain. We're just going to ignore you. Verse 24, when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. This is all true. Verse 25, see, Judah is coming clean. Judah is even able to see the truth. You know, sometimes people get so cluttered with stuff and family issues, they don't see reality, and Judah sees it clearly. Verse 25, then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with, with us, we will go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. This is all true. Verse 27, your servant, my father said to us, hang with us because this is all important review. You're getting the the review of the story right out of the text. Your servant, my father said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. That's Rachel, his favorite. Verse 28, one of them went away from me. And I said, that's Joseph. He has surely been torn to pieces. You remember back in Genesis 37, They threw Joseph in a pit. They took his favorite coat, 
this many colored coat and they, they killed an animal and they put blood on the coat and they took it back and showed it to Jacob and they let Jacob believe what he wanted to believe. It looks like something's happened to Joseph and it was bad. And Jacob assumed that Joseph was killed by some kind of wild beast. And all is left is his coat. Um... Verse 29, if you take this one from me, Benjamin, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray beard down to the grave in misery. Verse 30, so now, if the boy has not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, there that is, the father's life should have been closely bound up in all 12 of his sons and his one daughter, not one son. Your servants will bring, verse 32, your servant guaranteed, your servant Judah guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I did not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. So Judah took full responsibility for Benjamin. Judah saying, I'm giving my life for Benjamin. I will do whatever it takes. You can hold me accountable the rest of my life if any harm comes to Benjamin. The request comes in verses 33 and 34. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return to his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come to my father. Judah humbly asked the Lord of the land, if he can stand in for Benjamin and be the substitute and bear the responsibility of the guilty one. Have you ever heard of that before? Are you reminded that Jesus stood in for you and was your substitute for your guilt? And so Judah is willing to stand in the gap and take the fall for his brother and do it for the sake of his family and even for the sake of his father. By the way, this has been a test by Joseph. Joseph has been testing his brothers. What is he finding out? Remember, the boys didn't seem to care much about dad. They lied to dad and let dad think Joseph was dead. That's not really very caring. And how had they treated Benjamin? Benjamin was the favorite, remember? And even at the meal, the luncheon they had just before they left with their sacks full of food and silver. Remember, Benjamin got five times as much as the brothers. Joseph is finding out, what do they think of Benjamin? Are they going to cast off Benjamin like they did Joseph? And Joseph is finding out what's happening in the lives of the brothers. And certainly Judas comes back strong. And he cares about his brother and he cares about his dad. And he's willing to give himself uh, to uh, solve the problem. Number three, revealing the truth. We're on to chapter 45. This is the revelation. I don't suppose anybody wondered once why the... whole sermon was entitled Revelation, and here it is. 
Overwhelmed, verses 1 and 2. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. He reveals himself to his brothers. And he wept so loud that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it, and it became the hottest gossip in Egypt for a short time. 22 years of processing for Joseph. He's processing some anger he has. He's processed grief. He's processed loneliness. He's processed forgiveness. And um, he wept. And he wept so loudly. It just comes loose. It's like a dam that's been held up and now it is released. Now, just think for a minute. You're one of Joseph's brothers. The governor of Egypt has started weeping before you and he's just closed the doors and he's sent everybody off. No Egyptians in the room. What are you thinking? Who is this guy? This stuff is weird. What is the matter with him? He's about to kill us, and he's weeping. Declaration verses 3 and 4. Joseph said to his brother, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Think about this. Your brother, Joseph, is he alive? Could this be? Maybe it is. He says he's Joseph. God has found us out. This guy could kill us. He's the most powerful man and he's our brother and he knows everything now. He knows what we did to him. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. He said it again. I'm your brother. I'm Joseph. Because he could see they didn't get it the first time. Now, he said, come close to me. I think he wanted them, he wanted them to see him up close. Some scholars believed, this is not in the text, that Joseph revealed that he was circumcised in the presence of his brothers at this very moment. It's not in the text. I don't know. There would be nobody on the face of the earth that would be circumcised except Abraham's descendants, and there are not many of them. And certainly, that would have been a clue for his brothers. Verses 5 and 6. So I wouldn't go to the stake for that, and I won't explain it. Okay, verses 5 and 6. Comfort. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So Joseph now wants to, they're distressed, they're terrified, and and he wants to bring them comfort, and he wants them to calm down. Uh, Don't be angry with yourselves. You know, why do we do this? And, you know, earlier they were blaming each other for all that had happened. Joseph was not holding any grudges. Uh, Joseph sees a higher purpose. Joseph sees that the hand of God was at work in all of these circumstances even though he experienced much pain. Uh, Joseph sees God's 
purpose for 22 years of his life that seemed to be sidetracked. And God, Joseph sees God's big picture. Verse 6, for two years, there, Joseph says, there's been a famine in the land. For the next five years, there will, be, there will not be plowing and reaping. Nobody's going to grow crops. That's how bad it's going to be. That's how bad the famine is going to be. And so he is explaining this, the predicament, the situation to his brothers. The inside in verse 7, this is Joseph, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to save your lives by a great deliverance. Joseph sees how God is using him. God has a plan. Joseph is a part of that plan. And God is using the famine to get his family, uh, Joseph's family, out of the land of Canaan and into a new safe place. You know why he did that? Because the way they were living back in Canaan, they were becoming very secular. They were living without God. And they were living like the people that were already there. And so God is going to separate them out. And God is going to use Joseph to bring it about. Verse 8, the eternal perspective. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now you probably want to know what did he mean that he made Joseph father of Pharaoh. And the idea is what Joseph said to Pharaoh. Pharaoh viewed it like, you say it, I will do it. Joseph was the chief advisor to Pharaoh. Pharaoh trusted Joseph's advice thoroughly. And that's what he means by saying, I am like a father to Pharaoh. Instructions, verses 9 through 13. Now hurry back to my father, Joseph saying to the brothers, and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. That's kind of bold, isn't it? Remember the dreams. Because there's a dream about dad, too. Come down to me. Don't delay. This is what he's saying to dad. You shall live in the region of Goshen. Goshen is a pretty nice piece of property on the Nile Delta. And it's a great place if you have livestock. And that's all Jacob's family knows is livestock. The Egyptians don't like livestock, but it's going to be great for Hebrews. Verse 10, you shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. He's going to be close to Joseph, you and your children, your grandchildren, your flocks and your herds, and all you have. So bring the whole fam down to Egypt. Verse 11, I will provide for you there because of five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Verse 12, you can see for yourselves and so can my brother Benjamin that it is really I who am talking. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and everything you have seen and bring my father down quickly. I don't think Joseph was trying to brag. Tell my father all that you have seen. I think Joseph is saying, tell my father it's safe. Tell, tell my father it's really me and tell my father I really have authority to do this and you can come. Because you think dad believes much about the brothers? Dad's not sure what to think when the brothers have an opinion. Verses 14 and 15, they're reconciled. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin braced him, weeping, and he kissed all his brothers, and they wept over them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. For the first time in 22 years or longer, they now talk as brothers. 
They are family. Okay, some lessons. Have three lessons. The first lesson is expect life to test you even when you seem to be doing things right. Expect life to test you even when you seem to be doing things right. This is kind of similar to the one we did a couple weeks ago. There is um, several things, repetitious ideas in the story. And actually, I think it's really good to be reminded about some of the same things and over in a slightly different way. Expect life to test you even when you seem to be doing things right. Joseph's brothers in our story were tested by, jo- by Joseph and they are finally doing things right. And yet, the testing, the difficulties just get worse for them. And um, God is using that. And then remember the hard things in Joseph's life. Jo- Joseph was doing things right over and over again. And for 13 years, he, he would do things well. He'd get recognized, and then he'd get dumped again, thrown into prison. Um, so... Expect life to test you. Cool passage that's well known is Hebrews 12, 7 through 11. Hebrews 12. You have Hebrews 12. There we go. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Let me, let me concept, uh, comment about discipline. Endure hardship as discipline. It's important to know that word discipline. It means child Training. Training. Discipline is not like taking a switch and smacking you on the backside. Sometimes you need that, maybe. I know it's not, a, it's not cool. It's in the book of Proverbs, but um, endure hardship is discipline. God trains us, and God takes hardship to train us, to help us. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons because you're family for what son is not disciplined by his father. If, if your father loves you, he disciplined you. If you love your children, you are going to discipline your children because you want to keep them safe. You want, you want them to learn things that are valuable for life. And they need guidance because they're not ready for all of it at age four and at eight, 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 eight age 8 and age 12 and age 16 they need still pa- they need parents so that one day they can launch off and they can navigate life by themselves if you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline next verse then you are illegitimate children and not true sons so if god is not disciplining you you are not his child Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Next slide. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best and they were imperfect and they made mistakes. We all know that, but God disciplines us for our good and he's a perfect father and he doesn't make mistakes. He disciplines for our good that we may share in his holiness God has a purpose for training, and he trains us to be more like his son, Jesus. He trains us for our good. God uses difficulties for your good. I don't like all the difficulties there are in life, but I can sure look back and see how God has shaped me through difficult times. 
Verse 11, no, dis- no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. And then the last page, last, later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God produces a harvest, an abundance of righteousness. That's fruit bearing. And Jesus wanted us to bear fruit. And it includes difficulties. Let yourself be trained by God when things are difficult, especially when they're difficult. Lean into God. Ask him to show you what he's doing. Ask God for perseverance. Ask God for strength to walk through it. Secondly, difficult trials remind us what is really important in life. Difficult trials remind us what is really important in life. When you think of an eternity, when you think of an eternal perspective, there are only two things, according to Scripture, that last forever. People and the Word of God. I'm including God and the angels. I should say persons and the Word of God. People and the Word of God last forever. What's really important As Joseph's brothers endured distress, they began to reflect on what's really important. And they began to see their family as way more important than getting their own way. Trials will help you see that. When you're in distress and difficult circumstances, you know, a lot of things have happened. You probably remember where you were on 911. That was a devastating day for America. And we could identify, what is it like? What happened to those people? What are, those, what are the families at home? What are they going through that all of a sudden they're gone? And you know what I did that day? I called all of my kids because I wanted to know they were okay. Because when you, when you see something like that, you think about what's really important. And our kids are important. You know what? Your marriage is important. Your husband is important. Your wife is important. And, you know, we get into these little things that eternally are worthless, that that separate our relationships and families. And um, so when you think about what's important, well, it's going to be people and it's going to be the word of God. What does that mean when it comes to discipleship? How important is discipleship when people last forever? How much should we be investing so the kingdom of God will be advanced? You know, that also is evangelism. People coming to faith in Jesus Christ. How important is that to us? If people are important, that we have friends and neighbors and family who don't know Jesus yet. How do we spend our lives And look at 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. And he's talking about the first century church that were were undergoing very major persecution by this time. Verse 7, next slide. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
He's saying, your faith, your spiritual life, your growing into maturity is more important than precious gold. Your faith is about you. Your faith is about your identity in Jesus Christ, your personhood. It's about you. It's about people. And when it comes to what's important, you are important. And your spiritual growth is important in eternity. It's more important than gold. Would you rather grow more and more spiritually and have more and more gold, money, and all the stuff that goes with it? And then lastly, number three, live today in a way that will prepare you for your face-to-face with Jesus. Live today in a way that will prepare you for your face-to-face with Jesus. Joseph denied their sin for 22 years. Or excuse me, Joseph's brothers denied their sin for 22 years. Uh, 22 years of abusing Joseph and sending him into human trafficking. And then they were terrified and they stood before the most powerful man in the world. Joseph. During these days, Egypt was the most powerful nation. Joseph is the most powerful man. Yes, yes, there's still Pharaoh. Pharaoh could say, kill Joseph, and that'd be the end. But Pharaoh's, Pharaoh has handed all the authority to Joseph. And the brothers are scared to death for their lives, and they know they're found out. One day, you and I will stand before the most powerful man in the world. And his name is Jesus. And he is more than a man. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Each man, each one, may receive what is due him for things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, this is for believers. This is not, this is not about anybody going to hell. Anybody who's standing in this line, and there's not going to be a line, I don't think, but that's usually the picture. There's a line at judgment. But the people here are believers in Jesus. They are born again. And they will be held accountable for how they live. We will be held accountable because it does make a difference. Now, it's not for condemnation. It's more about reward. I don't know what it's going to be like. I just imagine that my life is going to be flashed before my eyes. It's just my way of picturing it. It's going to be like a video that takes 0.00001 seconds and my whole life is going to be on that screen. I might be the only one to see it, but I'm going to know. This is what honored Jesus. This was a waste. This was my sin. This was a disappointment. I'm going to know. I'm going to be held accountable. And then I'll be invited in to heaven. Now, we have a, this should be a great joy. Uh, Jesus loves us. It's not because he wants to smash us. He loves us. And I mentioned at the beginning, um, he couldn't love you more if you were perfect. We will stand before him face to face. And, uh, you know, wouldn't it be great to say, Jesus, what a pleasure to meet you after all this time. I've been, I've been looking forward to this. 
So let's stand. I want to pray. And um, how is God working in your life? How is he working through the difficult times? How is he working through the times that are great? Do you see God's hand at work in your life? Let's pray. Father, it's my prayer this morning that you would give us ears to hear and uh, to understand how you work in our lives. Give us eyes to see that you're working in our circumstances right now. Give us wisdom as we think about our lives in the past to look back and see how your hand has worked through difficult circumstances, through my failures. And give me uh, the ability to see the steps I need to take in the future so that I can keep uh, walking with you. And God, we just um, we want to draw close to you as we may be, there may be people in this room going through difficult times right now. And, you know, maybe some are just things are going great. And we just give you praise for that. But draw close to us wherever we are and just help us to walk with you one day at a time. And that uh, one day we will stand before you. And one day we will be able to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.